It was probably 25 years ago, give or take. And some of you are, some of you are thinking 25 years ago. Um, I, I'm not old enough to look back 25 years. And I, even this week, I'm trying to figure out how I got old enough to say 25 years ago I was doing something. But, and then it reminds me of Phil Platt, who, who said, I don't know, at some point my kids got older than I did. And uh, I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm understanding better all the time. But 25 years ago, give or take, there was a guy named John who came alongside of me, mentored me, discipled me, and, uh, you know, kind of a combination of things, me inviting him in and him asking, hey, would you allow me to do this for you? And uh, if I have any ability in, in the area of communication, um, I give him much credit for it and, uh, and challenging me and encouraging me to, to develop this, um, to be able to communicate the word of God in a clear way. And, you know, there was a four, maybe a five-year period in there in which, you know, we, we were together a lot. And when you're around somebody, you know, there are things that we just say. And uh, my ki- you ask my kids, they'll say, what does dad say? And there'll be several things that come up with. You all know, you know, you look back, what, does you, <laughs> what did your dad say? And there's always three or four things that, oh, yeah, this is what he always said. One of the things that John would say, you know, maybe not as often as I remember, but he would say it often. And it was something along the lines of, you know, when God is calling you to an area of obedience. He's going to wait until you obey before calling you to another area of obedience. And it's not like, you know, a game where you don't like the card you draw and you can just pass and go on to the next thing. It doesn't work like that. And when I first heard him say that, it, I, it, it, I'd never really thought about it. And I wasn't too sure I believed him. Because there were areas of my life where it's like I knew I was putting God off. And, well, I'm continuing to move on and, and doors are continuing to open. But the more I thought about it and considered it, I began to realize what happens is it kind of stunts your development. God is calling me to obedience. And this is where it's at. It's this thing right here. And for whatever reason, it's too hard or it's too difficult or it's too scary or I just don't want to do it. I want to obey in this thing over here. And so God, give me this thing over here. Or I see somebody over here. God, you're calling somebody else to obey here? Call me in that thing. I want to do that. And God is saying, no, I want you to obey here. And so I'm confronted with the choice. Do I obey here? Or do I go about chasing other things while God waits patiently for me to obey here? And what I've found in my life and what I've seen in countless others is when I obey here, the doors open up, there's blessing, there's reward in it, there's peace in it, and all of a sudden God says, okay, 
You came through this door, now I want you to obey here. And as I learned to obey, I learned trust. And I build faith that God will be faithful to carry me through. That he's not asking me to do something that's going to completely destroy my life. But he's calling me into greater blessing. A few weeks ago when Anthony spoke about surrender. And that's really what obedience is about. It's about surrendering. God, I surrender this. You're calling me to obey. And and sometimes it's out of outright rebellion. No way. I'm not doing it. Uh Uh-uh. I don't want to. Or I'm scared to. Or that's just not who I am. And sometimes it's out of ignorance. God's calling us to obey, and we just never really connected the dots. We've not been challenged there necessarily, or we just haven't found it in Scripture, haven't been convicted by the Holy Spirit. So we just kind of miss it, and then somebody comes alongside and points that out. Oh, I need to be doing this. That's the awesome thing about the Word of God. It's living and active, and and regardless of how long you follow Jesus, as you read the Word of God, suddenly something that you've read a hundred thousand times stops you. And how have I missed this? It's been here the whole time. How did I not see it? And I'm confronted with the opportunity, the choice. Am I going to surrender here and obey? Because now that I know, I have to, or God is going to wait patiently for me to obey. This is when you obey, then we'll go on to the next thing. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, we find what we call the Great Commission. And what I see in here in the area of obedience is where God is calling his followers. These are the things that my followers will do. And so this week and next, you notice there's a part one. (laughs) Next week will be part two. We're going to be looking at four different things. So if you're uncomfortable in any of these, don't worry. You know, we aren't camping out on any one for two weeks. Um, That means... You've got lots of time to Google and expand your study and understanding of these things to see, am I needing to obey in these areas? Do I need to grow in these areas? In Matthew 28, verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. We'll we'll go on in a minute, because this really is the key. Everything you're going to hear this morning, the next week, hinges on that statement. Our entire walk with Christ, our relationship with him, hinges on that statement. All authority in heaven and on the earth have been given to me. That means we answer to... Jesus. All authority has been given to him. That means the way my life is lived, the things I choose to pursue, 
the things I choose to believe, I answer to him on all of those counts. That means he sets the rules. We live by his rules, whether we want to admit it or not. We look around, we see people, their lives are just hard, and, well, they don't know any better. Well, that's, that's okay, yeah, they don't know any better. However, the rules are set. Jesus has set them, and whether we know it or not, there are consequences when we don't follow and we don't obey. Whether we can plead ignorance or not. And so all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, go therefore, because of this, you need to go. You answer to me. So go and tell others. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe. In some other translations it says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's the hope. There's the assurance. You know, it's one thing that, okay, all authorities have given to me, so go do this. But it's not just kick you out and figure it out and let, we'll find out at the end of your life how you did it. No, I am with you as you do this. Even to the end of the age. And we're not at the end of the age yet because we're still here. Maybe before I'm done. I don't know. Maybe on our way home. But lo, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Maybe you've noticed in the bulletin, you know, the the announcement that we are planning for a baptism service in the near future. There's no date set on it. I want to touch on this. If you've gone to church here, you understand, you should understand um, what we believe that the Bible teaches about baptism. I just want to touch on that because that's part of this that Jesus is saying when you go and you preach my gospel and you baptize those who follow me, who respond in repentance. In Matthew 3, in Mark 1, in Luke 3, in John chapter 1, we all see the, the different gospel accounts of Jesus' baptism. And what I am discovering the longer I live is that Jesus is never going to ask me to obey in an area in which he hasn't already done it. He doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't already done, where he hasn't already paved the way and shown the way. In Acts chapter 8, you see the account of Philip and the Ethiopian ruler, In Acts chapter 9, you see the baptism of Saul, now Paul the Apostle. In Acts chapter 16, you see the account of the Philippian jailer who's ready to kill himself when he thought Paul and, and was that Silas at that time? Paul and one of the other prisoners had escaped, and Paul said, no, 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 we're still here. We're too tired and beat up to run away. We haven't gone anywhere. 
and they explained the gospel, and because of just how they'd responded to the injustice around him, this man had repented from his sin, and he took them out of the prison and brought them home to his family and cleaned them up and fed them, and they explained to his family, and they were all saved and baptized that night. As we read scripture, what we find is that as a follower of Jesus, he commands us to be baptized. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about what baptism is or what it isn't. Last week, if you were here, Helene gave the announcement about the the sewing kits and the, the school kits going out. And one of the things that she mentioned, hey, we're an Anabaptist church. And I, I kind of laughed, and I, I wondered, so how many here can define what Anabaptist is? Kay and, and, uh, and Jeff. I can't remember your name. I've only known you 17 years. Kay and Jeff. Anabaptist, that means to be baptized again. Now, where does that come from? Well, you go back in church history at the time of the Reformation, These men of God, as they are trying to reform the corruption that had developed in the church, the kind of the, the, the power of the time, you know, you can only change so much. You can only do so much. And, and, and baptism had come to be a thing where you just baptize a baby to guarantee their spot in heaven. That's all it meant. I'm going to choose for my children what they're going to do. And there was a group of individuals, a group of reformers, as they studied the scripture, they began to see, no, that's, we don't find this anywhere. We don't see that I can choose for someone else. So what does scripture teach about baptism? Well, it, it, it's, about, it's a symbolic act representing what has already happened internally. It's a public statement about what has happened inside of me, what God has done, and what God is going to continue to do for me. It's not something I do so I can guarantee a spot in heaven. It's not something I do that will seal the deal and make sure I get the last step into heaven. It's a symbolic act of obedience. It's symbolic as, as you're dipped under the water, immersed in the water. And just a side note here, I'm not super dogmatic about this, I mean, or hard-nosed, or I'm not going to fight with anybody you're rolling the dirt with, and I'm too old for that anyway. But, you know, this isn't a live-or-die issue as to, okay, how the baptism looks. It just, in Scripture, the Greek word was always indicating full immersion. And so, you know, if you want to be the most literal in, in being baptized, you know, you're fully immersed. You know, and there's, we can make exceptions. Like I said, I don't want to argue, spend a lot of time with it. I noticed a few weeks ago when Tony was here, if you've noticed when Tony Howe comes, every video he shows, every individual who was baptized, and this time he had a video over the last two years, I don't know how many individuals I lost track. I was going to count, and I lost track because the screen started going too fast. 
And if, if you just think it seems redundant, now it's a big deal. Because before Tony baptizes anyone, they have to burn their idols publicly. Indicating, I'm going to follow Jesus. And this old life is gone, regardless of what it means, regardless of how my family responds. That's why Tony puts those in there. It's a big deal. But you notice in this last one, there was an old man. And I don't know how he looked like. He looked like he'd worn out two bodies. Over 90. And I don't know if you caught it, how he was sitting at the table and they sprinkled his hands as he was baptized. I know there are churches that say, well, that's not good enough. It didn't take. Um, You know what? I'm not not that guy. But in any case, it was a symbolic gesture of obedience I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus commanded us to be baptized. You say, well, so what? Well, remember, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. And because of this, this is what I want you to do. It's an act of obedience. And really, it's first obedience. And I've talked to individuals who, you know, man, it just seems like this whole following Jesus thing, I've done it so long and it just seems like I'm, I'm not, I don't have the traction I think I should have or things aren't going. And one of the questions I ask is like, well, in terms of obedience, have you done these things? Have you been baptized? Well, no. Well, why not? And to be perfectly honest, and this isn't to be irreverent, or sacrilegious, or disrespectful in any means, I really don't get it. Why would Jesus ask this if it's purely symbolic? And maybe one day I'll figure it out, and I'll be excited to tell you. But until then, I just go back. He told us to do it, so we do it. And if I can't be baptized, if I, I'm just not going to do it. You know what my folks would say? I was baptized as a baby. Why do I need to do this again? Or I just don't think it's necessary. Or I, it's not my call. We're called to obedience. And Jesus is waiting for us to obey in this area so he can open the door to blessing and then greater obedience and We can go on and move on and develop from there. It's not a matter of, hey, I'm baptized when I got my life all together and the ducks are in a row. Your ducks might not even be in the baptismal when it happens. But it's an act of obedience. It's what it is. I'm just saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. And if you have repented of your sin and you are following Christ, that's the prerequisite. You start off, it's it's just the first area of baptism. We don't wait. Let me go back. You need to know that I am committed. Because that's what it's a public announcement. This is what I'm doing. This is who I am. This is the path I will pursue. This is where I'm headed. 
When Jesus was baptized, he was baptized by his cousin John, John the Baptist. And, and even Jesus himself, hey, John came out, he proclaimed a baptism of repentance. And it was common in Jewish culture, hey, you come about, I realize I've not been living the way I need to, or I come to a new understanding and suddenly, oh, I need to do things differently. And so you'd be baptized as a symbol of this is where I'm headed at this point. As a follower of Christ, we are baptized to symbolize that we have died to ourselves and we are raised to new life in Jesus. And I'm going to obey him. And this is a step of obedience. It's an act of obedience. And again, Jesus himself. He's not asking us to do so. He was baptized. If he didn't need to be. But he did it. He submitted to it. In the book of Hebrews, we find that, that we follow. Jesus is the great leader, the great captain, as he suffered under temptation and learned obedience. And he didn't learn obedience because, well, I wasn't doing it, now I have to. He learned what it entailed. We're not on our own to figure it out. It's, it's an area of first obedience. And so going on this week, if you've not been baptized, if you are a follower of Christ, I would encourage you to pray, to search out your heart and say, why haven't I done this? What's kept me from this? To do the study. To act in obedience. To get in contact with Anthony. Say, hey, when this happens, I want to be a part. Another area I see here of first obedience. And it, it's not explicitly stated here. It just kind of you read into it and you see it. But Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Another area of first obedience that I see that, that people get hung up on and God waits patiently for us to respond, to surrender that, is in the area of giving. We come to Christ, and we start to figure out what it means to follow him, what a life of obedience is, but we get hung up because whether it be our time, or our money, or our gifts, or our talents, or whatever it is, we, you know, I don't, that's kind of my thing. That's my stuff. And God, you already own the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't need what I've got. And yet, it's, it's an area of first obedience where, 
where God, where Jesus had spoke much about what we do with the gifts he has given us. You know, the one to whom much is given, much is expected. The parable of the talents. In Mark chapter 12, 41 to 44, and it's found again in Luke 21, 1 through 4, we see the story where Jesus and his disciples are in the temple, and you would walk into the temple, and there's like this big commons area, we would call it today, where really anyone could come and go in that area. And in that area, there would be these big boxes. And that was the, not really the treasury, but that's where you would bring your gifts. And it, it had become, at this point, kind of a show. And the guys who were wealthy would come in with their, their money bags, and they would walk over. I should have brought a bunch of, I don't know, rocks to dump in something and rattle. I don't have any coin big enough. Nobody has coin anymore, but in any case, they'd come over and they would make a big show of putting their money in the box, you know, or dump their big bag out and shake it out and make sure the last little whatever come out of there. And the disciples are sitting there with Jesus and they're watching these guys with the nice clothes and the new donkey and uh, whatever, and they bring their money in there and dump it in the box and they're really impressed. And Jesus is looking over on this other side. Hey, guys, check this out. Yeah, we are, Jesus. Do you see what's going on? No, guy, over here. Oh, what, what? And in my mind's eye, I see my great-grandmother. You know, this tall. Crippled up from age and time. Going over there, and you can't even hear what goes in the box. And Jesus asked the question, who gave more? And it doesn't say that the disciples said anything. And it's my guess, it's because they were all sitting there looking at Jesus like, how stupid do you think we are? We know who gave more. We've been watching these guys give more. And what does Jesus tell them? This woman gave far more than all of those guys because she gave everything she had to live on. They gave out of their abundance. She gave everything. So in terms of giving, and I can hear it now because I've had this discussion more than once. It's maybe been an argument a time or two. Years ago, not now, I wouldn't argue. I'm beyond that point, right? As my wife rolls her eyes. (laughs) The eye roll threw me off. But in the Old Testament, you know, there was a tithe that came right off the top, 10%. And I've heard those say, well, that's Old Testament. Jesus died. We're under grace. There's nothing to it. And I would say, go back and see where the tithe is first mentioned. It's found in Genesis before Moses is ever on the scene, writing down the laws and commands and expectations of God for his people. Abraham 
when he saves his nephew's bacon? That was before the law, they could eat bacon. When Lot is living in Sodom and he and all his property is captured and carried off and, and Abraham with his private army goes and with God's power and help they rout the, the enemy, they bring everyone back plus way more stuff than what was taken. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes out to greet them and to bless Abraham. And Abraham gives him a tenth of everything that was recovered. That's the first mention of a tithe. It goes back before the law, and I would argue it started before the law was issued, and I have a fairly strong conviction that it continues after the law. It's not mentioned. Nowhere in the New Testament do you find that this is a percentage that you need to give to walk in full obedience. In the Old Testament, if you were to give your tithe, it was right off the top. It was like a no-brainer. You didn't even think about it. You just gave it. And then there were offerings and sacrifices on top that could, if you were really devout, it might be up to 30 to 40% of your yearly income that you would give back to the work of God. In the New Testament, Jesus teaches sacrificial generosity. He wants our hearts. He wants our obedience. He's not looking for us to have a list that I'm going to check these things off and I've got this and I've got this and I've got this and it's a no-brainer and I don't need to think about it. It's sacrificial generosity and he wants us to grow in that area just like in every other area of obedience. If we can't surrender that, you can say, okay, I, the baptism thing, I can get over that. But, you know, hey, what's mine is mine. I don't want to sacrifice the time. I don't want to sacrifice the money. I don't want it, whatever. And we look at Jesus' example, and again, he's not asking us to do anything he didn't. You read in Philippians, and what did he do? He gave up everything. He gave up his position and he humbled himself and put aside glory to be a man, to walk more than a mile in our shoes, spend a lifetime in our shoes, and to show us it could be done. New Testament giving isn't an afterthought. It's not out of our abundance that, you know what, I've got this, I got that, I ate out, oh, hey, I found an extra whatever it is, I'll give that. It's planned. It's thought out. New Testament giving is worship, recognizing that Jesus gave all for me. Paul says God loves a cheerful giver. He's talking to the Corinthians and, and they had promised to put together a gift for him to bring back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the believers there were facing severe persecution on top of the fact that there was a famine in the land and nobody was doing very well. And so, hey, let's bring back a gift to help folks out, just to help them get by. And the Corinthian church had promised this big gift and had never delivered on it as of yet. And Paul is saying, hey, just put it together, get it ready. When I come, I'll pick it up. I won't have to say anything about it. You can just hand it to me. 
Have it ready. The New Testament giving is sacrificial. I give up stuff. I give up stuff that I may want, I may think I need, in order to give back to God or to give to those who are in need. I think of my grandparents and how they modeled that for me. And I've probably said it here before. I know I've told a lot of folks, but I remember when I wanted to get an engagement ring for Chris, picked out the ring, I saw how much it was going to cost, and I took a deep breath, and I said, I'm going to have to work, and work and work some more. And about two weeks later, my car broke down, and the cost of my car repair was more than what that ring was going to cost. And there, you know, you got the two little guys on your shoulder. And I wasn't really listening to the one at all. You know, the one is saying, just buy the ring, don't worry about the car. It's like, like she's going to marry me without a car because I bought a ring if I'm that kind of idiot. You know, how dumb is she to marry that idiot? <laughs> you know, on the other hand, I need to fix it. And I'm, I'm wrestling, and I knew I've got to fix the car. That week, I get a letter, inside is a check, mom, mom and dad sent it, my grandparents, and I don't know how they did that, they weren't wealthy people, it's not like they didn't need the money, but they would get a check for something, put it aside, forget it's there, the bank would call, are you ever going to cash this thing, or the business, whoever wrote the check, oh yeah, we, we just forgot to do it. Well, we lived without it this long. I guess we don't need it. Who can we give it to? Who could use it? And so they sent that check to my folks. Says, hey, you've got five kids. Figure out who needs some money. And I don't know who got what of my siblings. I've never asked. I don't think anybody would remember. But there was enough in that check to pay for my car, to fix the vehicle so I could buy a ring because my grandparents gave generously and sacrificially that is what God is calling his people to be for his work and for the work of the kingdom And he doesn't say, give this much or give this percent. He's not specific because we're all in different places. There are those that could give, every week could be writing check for thousands of dollars. There are those, when I graduated high school, a family, why I remember them? I remember them because it was a sacrificial gift. I got a $20 bill from them. And I look at that car and say, there's no way they can afford to give me 20 bucks. There's no way. But they found a way. That's almost 30 years ago. And it sticks, the sacrificial generosity of God's people. 
I know the blessing it's been to me. Why wouldn't I be that for somebody else? And not just because I want to, but because that's the best reason, but because it's an act of obedience. God is calling us to sacrificial generosity. And if I'm hung up on this thing, and no way, God, I just can't. There's no way. God's going to wait. And he's going to wait. And he's going to wait. And at some level, at various levels, we're going to feel stunted in our walk with him because we have not taken that step of faith, that step of obedience. I'm going to give back. I may not have much. I don't know where it's going to come from, but God, I'm committing. This is, this is my plan for giving. And that's where you find that as you step in obedience, God, you find that he meets your needs. And my trust and my faith grows so that when something really big or devastating happens, I can look back and say, well, if he's done this and this and this as I've walked in obedience, then I can trust him to do this as I go forward in obedience. In Psalm 37, verse 25, Palmer and I, were just, I got the direct reference this time, Palmer. We were talking just this week. I said, I know it's in the 30s somewhere in Psalms. Psalm 37, verse 25, the psalmist writes, I was young. Once I was young, and now I am old. One thing I know, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. When we walk in obedience, when we trust God in obedience, we will not be forsaken. He's not going to say, oh, what a sucker. Why would you have done that? He has promised to care for us. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. In Philippians 4.19, we read that my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory. Just this week, I'm talking to a guy. And he said, throughout my lifetime, I've seen it over and over and over and over again. He said, the one year I worked my tail off, my place of employment gave me a very nice bonus at the end of the summer. I had, you know, it wasn't Christmas, it was just at the end of the summer, they write me a check, a bonus check for 5000 bucks, and we're thinking, well, how are we going to spend this? What fun things can we do? And we light the furnace, and it doesn't work. Are you kidding me? Now i got to waste this money on a furnace? Well, let's see how well that would work last winter. And he says, when I got done complaining about buying a furnace, I realized God had supplied my need before we needed a furnace. And I was grateful. God will take care of his own. He's not asking us to obey where he has not, where his son has not already led. Next week, as we continue in here, we're going to be looking at evangelism and discipleship, other areas of first obedience. 
where God is calling us to just step out and obey, to get over ourselves and just follow and see him work. So this morning as we close, I just ask, will you trust him enough to surrender? Will you trust him enough to step out in obedience? And maybe these two things aren't your things. Maybe, maybe it's something else where you just know, I know this is what he wants me to do. And for days or weeks or months or years, it's just kind of been there, and I know, but I don't want to do it. And at this point, I don't want to humble myself to do it. Step out in obedience and see how God will throw open the doors. To see what he will do in and through you as you trust him in obedience. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy.org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.